I'll have a swig of beer. You do the intro. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the Crumpcast. In this episode, we'll be talking through a handful of things we've learned during our competitive career to date. These will be tips that we feel have really helped us up our game. Some will be practical, some will be theoretical. Hopefully, there is something of benefit in this that to you as the listener. But before all of that, Ross, uh, how have you been? What have you been up to for the last month? Hello, everybody. Well, yeah, last month has been basically Christmas, and I've been having a relaxation time, working hard at work as well. Bit of a 50-50 split. I've also had toddler flu as well over that entire period, so I'm just on the road to recovery. I think a lot of people are feeling the same way this time of year. Um, but ready to be back in the seat of podcasts and share our journey. We've got a really exciting year coming up. We were doing our planning earlier as a team for what events we're going to so uh, a really exciting time of the year everyone likes a new a new 40k season and uh, we're really up for it yes we we definitely are we've certainly got a lot of gts coming our way which is great we've got the beachhead uh, down in bournemouth in, in a couple of weeks time excited for that hopefully the data slate is out before that tournament that'll be i think our first, or my first at least, I can't speak for you here, Ross, but that'll be my first major tournament. I don't know about you. Yeah, absolutely uh, massive tournament. It's got to be one of the biggest in the UK, uh, without a doubt. But today, we're not talking about the future so much. We're talking about the past. Uh, Jack and I have been doing, let's say, competitive games properly with a purpose for around... A year it's pretty much the one year anniversary of our first actual RTT I don't think we were together at the time but our calendars kind of sync up and throughout that process of one year ago to now we've been to a mix of different RTTs some have been good some have been okay been to some team events and we have developed and matured as players. I can remember myself when I first started doing RTTs. I think I may have been a little bit um, inexperienced, let's say, and not really knowing what I was doing. I think I was running, probably, if you can imagine a, a headless chicken running around, that's probably me, but rolling dice. And now I feel like my head is attached, but is also full of lots of information. And that's what we're gonna share with you today, what we've learned in the last year. So I'll get us started. And, and this one has really been a big one for me. It's move blocking. It was a, a theory I'd never, I'd never even considered until I heard the word mentioned. And then I looked it up and I found whatever I could find about it. And, and now it's a bread and butter of the way I play. So, there, to explain move blocking, there are opportunities where instead of maybe charging a unit, you can just walk in and stay outside of an inch from them to deny them doing something in their next turn. Because charging into them may risk you your troops dying. Whereas actually the purpose of move blocking is to, to completely stop them from doing anything regarding movement in their turn. Now, to give you an example of that, or some examples of that, I guess to give perspective. So... If you take a Votan army at the moment, and we take a six Sagittar Votan list, now those Sagittars have a six inch scout move, and they also have a 12 inch move, and they can advance with the guys inside then able to jump out and shoot. So these Sagittars, turn one, can go six inch scout, 12 inch move, so 18 inches. Given that no man's land is only 24 inches, that is huge. You throw in the potential advance and then the uh, potential sort of deploy within three inches and shoot, these guys can go 27 inches. They can get an angle on whatever they want, or the occupants can get an angle on whatever they want. That, that is horrifying, especially when there's six of them that can just come up the board. It's very hard to deal with, especially when you don't have a, a huge amount of assets. Playing the Eldari, that's, that's my life. I've lost several times to some horrendous scout moves, but, but now I take... I take five rangers, and they're 55 points, and I'm sure most armies have infiltrators. They may not be as cheap as mine, but I can take those five rangers, and I can make a 13-inch long line 
right outside a VOTAN player's deployment zone. And I can completely deny the scout move. The scout move, you have to end up more than nine inches away from an enemy unit. So they, they can't scout move at all. They can go side to side or back further into their deployment zone. That's fine by me. But they can't come forward. And so they then have to basically spend an entire turn dealing with those ranges to then get further up the board. So you're sacrificing a unit, yes, but you are crippling your opponent's game plan. And that's that's been really big for me. I think the other thing where it's come into play is, is with melee armies. I've suffered, as you well know, Ross, I've not been very good into melee armies ever. I've always struggled. I don't think I have much of a win rate against them at all. But then with this move blocking discovery, rather than trying to charge into these units and, and letting them get free hits on me, if I just form with, with anything I need to, uh, a wall, just, just spaced out and away from all of my other things so they can't charge me and then consolidate into another unit, I can deny or I can force that player to have to charge me if they want to get further down the field or they want to get to a certain location. And likewise, outside of melee armies, I can also throw a squad away to just form a ring round, round vehicles or to block off points between two buildings to stop vehicles getting certain angles. That sort of sacrificial play style is, yeah, that's been really big in terms of changing my game. I don't know what you think on that topic, Ross. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? It's huge. It is, it's a, it's a, a paradigm shift because I remember when I started playing 40k, it was, I had this fear of losing units and I didn't really see how to play like chess because that's a good sort of analogy of what 40k is. It is, it is a chess game. I mean, it's a chess game with dice and it's a chess game with little models rather than a set piece. So it can, I would think, be complex because you can't just... you can't, with, with chess, obviously, there's set moves. You know, there's books on it. But with the variables in 40k there's different armies there's different weapons different loadouts it can be hugely complex and thinking more than one turn ahead as you're doing now with your with your scout moves with your blocking that's how you stop losing basically um you have to stop that early advance that early charge especially against melee i mean against orcs for instance the big thing is like the turn to wah but to get that turn to wah you need to stage and to stage you need to move and if you deny an orc player that turn one move with their trucks to get their units in place for that turn two or maybe turn three wah it puts them really on the back foot and it is it's huge it's hugely effective and it makes the opposing player have to think it's like moves and counter moves and very strong and you see it at the top tables that's why everyone's taking nurglings that's why everyone's taking these um, cheap scout units and you do actually bring up a big learning for myself which is the sacrifice word that you've you've brought up there and that's something that i've really been looking into because if you play if you play games on your computer you'll know that some say a strategy game you'll have you'll have a cost to build a unit let's let's say you know command and conquer you'll have one tank cost 100 units and you'll have another big tank that costs maybe 300 well if you can kill that 300 point unit with maybe two of your 200 point units then you win it's a points based thing and that can translate directly into 40k and that's where my brain is going now with orcs being a horde army I've got a lot of units to dispose of and to sacrifice. And one of the big changes in my mind is trying to upsell your units. So if I can throw a unit of 10 boys, 80 points, at a unit of uh, something, I can't, off the top of my head I can't think of something, but let's say another unit of infantry that's worth 100 points, and I kill that unit with my 80 point unit of boys, I've gained 20 points overall and this can be a, a hugely effective way of winning a match. You just have to uptrade as much as possible. Sometimes it won't be possible and in Jack's description there he's actually throwing away 55 points 
to stop a move, okay? But that move might actually cost you 200 points. It might cost you 300 points. If that unit that's not been able to move then can't directly attack or tie up one of your backline units, a tank, you know, something that's kicking out a lot of firepower, then effectively that five, that 55 point unit has saved you maybe two, 300 points overall in the game. There's a lot around, I guess, messing with your opponent's plans. And I think there is levels on the ladder in terms of placings at tournaments. You could see it as that. And people, some people will go there with a set game plan, but, but that is their game plan. Maybe they're new to their army. Maybe they've only got six, seven reps. And as soon as you shut down that game plan, as soon as you mess with it, that's you've got a massive advantage. You're forcing that person on the back foot to think they've probably not been in this situation before. And yeah, the, the sacrificial pawn moves in chess, it's exactly the same. Why is this person doing it? Why are they giving me a free pawn right now? You're trying to work it out. Same in 40k, and it's, it's brilliant. I think it's hard to it's hard to teach but it's one of those you just have to do it just just until you get that feel of what your sacrificial unit can be against x army because you need reps against lots of different armies to know maybe what to sacrifice to what and to when it, it does lead into another point i think that is the value of reps and the value of knowing some of the maths for your unit it comes back to that sacrificial point so I think reps is kind of an obvious one in the sense that typically the more you do something, the better you get at it. And that applies to 40k. If you are constantly bouncing between armies, and I'm speaking from first-hand experience here, then you can only get to a certain point. But after sticking with the same army for, I think I've played 50 games this edition, I, I'm noticeably enjoying the game more. I'm way less stressed at the table. I finish games with sometimes with a lot of time left on my clock and it gives me more time to think, okay, what is my opponent doing? Because I know my army so well and I'm experienced with my army. And I think, yeah, if I could recommend anything to anyone, if, if you're trying to get better, just keep playing the same army over and over. Another thing that, that ties into that reps is learning your army, learning the maths. So. I think for me, I don't know about you, I use Marines. This basic Space Marine is the, the sort of baseline I'll use for the maths. So if I'm, as an example, if I'm going to take a Harlequin troop uh, with a troop master attached, I know that if I charge a squad of five regular Space Marines, I'm going to do on average three devastating wounds and five and a half unsaved wounds. So I know immediately I'm going to kill four Space Marines on average every time. So for me, in terms of that sacrificing, in terms of that trading, if there are five Space Marine Scouts sat on an objective all alone, I know I can go and flip that objective in my favour. And I'm not sacrificing anything there. I may be, they may get shot off that objective in the next turn, but because of that sacrifice, I've denied my opponent five primary points and I've lost a lot of games by five points. I think that sacrifice is big. As long as you know the maths, you don't want to just be blindly sacrificing units. You want to know that you're going into a situation either gaining something or with a specific advantage. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's actually something that I I absolutely agree with. And I've had to do it with my orcs because, as you know, I, I love my orcs. I play them a lot and people see them as an easy army or, or a basic army and then they move on to the next thing but once you know them once you know as you said what they can and can't kill for instance i brought gas coal a long time ago and i kind of fell out of love with him but then recently i've brought him back into my list because i have realized that i've not got anything that can really crack open strength 12 or above and that's a problem in today's meta where you've got a lot of vehicles you need something that can crack and i know from experience that even if i throw a unit of knobs which is strength 10 on the wire against a vehicle on average i'm probably not going to kill something like you know uh, a land raider or one of the bigger space marine tanks i think space marines are a very good example so space marines are a good example of the average army so 
as Jack does, if you know what a unit of your guys can kill in terms of Space Marines, it's a good base level to know how many Eldari you can kill, because Eldari are a bit weaker. We're talking about melee, so if you can kill five Space Marines, you could probably kill more than five Eldari in close combat. Better, better toughness, T5 rather than T4, same save, but they're tougher, so if you kill five normal Space Marines, you might only kill three Death Guard. So that would, you know, that would, that should be in your mind when you're making that charge or you're making that shooting attack. Can I actually kill it? And it shouldn't be a question. It should be, I know I can kill that and that's what I want to do. Or I know I can't kill it, but I can do some damage. And you need to know those maths. They're very important. And when you look at the higher end players, they will know. They will go, my unit of X can kill unit of Y. And I know that. And that is that's a good place to be. And that is just experience. It is getting lots of reps into different armies. But once you know it, you know it. And also, you don't then have to think while you're playing a competitive match. You can focus more on the movement. You can put your units in the right places to deal with your enemy units. Which you know you should be able to deal with. And conversely, you can... You know, shield your weaker units from the units in your enemy's army, which you know probably will threaten them. So it can be huge in terms of your um, game plan, your setup of your units at the start, and even how you approach taking objectives and scoring. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no denying that the uh, the math is important. I don't think it's the be all and end all but the, but the game is is a numbers game if at the end of the day if you know you can do roughly x and, and if you just be okay with that roughly you will in theory start winning more games because you'll start making better decisions and in terms of making better decisions one of the things that has helped me and, and i apply this to, to life in general is asking what you can do differently asking the person opposite you especially when they beat you what could I have done differently? What did I do wrong? And I've got some examples, I suppose, where that has really changed the, the way I play. And one of them is from the team tournament we went to in Cambridgeshire, which was nearly a year ago now. And I played against a guy called Luke Townsend, I think. He, he At the start of the game, he told me he was a rank 70-something demon player in the UK. And that immediately put me on the back foot. And... And what it did was it made me play really passively. And you know, and this was pre-pre-Nerf Eldari. So I've got a Wraith Knight, I've got D-Cannons, I've got Wraith Guard, and I've got just a savage amount of devastating wound output with the all spilling on it. And we had this sort of standoff where I didn't really move much out of my deployment zone with anything, and he didn't really move much out of his deployment zone with his... He was running lots of the Zinch Greater Demons, the, uh, the giant birds. And he also told me that he hadn't lost a game to Eldari this edition. And so that put me on the back foot. And so we played this really stale game where we were using our small units to run around scoring secondaries. And, and at the end of the game, I, I said, look, what could I have done differently? And he said, well, you could have just pushed me. You could have pushed me off the table. Why didn't you come forwards with the Wraith Guard? And I said, well, because I didn't know what your army could do. I, I, I had no idea about your firepower. He said, but okay, if you lost those Wraith Guard, what difference would it have made to the game? Because they didn't do anything for the game, so you might as well have pushed them forwards to try and do something. And so just by having that conversation with him after the game, I had that realisation that as a player, I was being too passive overall. And a couple other examples, there was a chap called uh, Adam Parmenta. He, he smashed all this in Blood Angels a couple of months ago. I asked him at the end of the game, what could I have done differently? And he told me, stop spreading your army out too much. He said, if you had, you, he said, you allowed me to control all of the middle objectives. And we were playing hammer and anvils, so, which is great for melee armies because everything's quite condensed. But even so, he said, if you had just focused down one flank, he said, you would have an extra 15 points right now. And, and I lost by less than 15 points or potentially have 15 points. But because you spread out, you allow me to control the board. You allow me to rapid ingress wherever I wanted to and take out your assets. And so just 
again, that advice helps me really change my play style. And sometimes it is hard to hear what you've done wrong, but I think people that people that are experienced are always happy to help. Have you had any sort of experience around that, Ross? Yeah, your first point about um, getting getting flustered against what you would say is better players, well, definitely higher ranked players, and probably, yeah, better players. Definitely, uh, I definitely have had that experience because at Cardiff, first match, I can't remember who it was. I can't, honestly can't remember his name. I think it was Chris something, but he's a, a top Art of War player. And he's playing CSM, and basically, I'm Orcs, and my normal Orc move is just charge, strategically charge, obviously, and try and kill. But for some reason in that game, I was like, oh my god, I'm playing against this guy who's obviously really good, I'm going to lose, and I don't know how to approach it. So I just played really passively, like you, Jack. I was just like, I'm going to hang back as an Orc player, and I'm going to wow on turn one, because I, I'm afraid of shooting, and... Then on turn two, I'm going to hang back. And then by turn three, I was dead. And just completely fluffed it because I... <laughs> I mean, it was, I, st I, st I still managed to score some points, but it wasn't my normal my normal play style at all. Uh, I think sticking to your guns is, is a big one and not getting frustrated or flustered, let's say, in the face of someone who's more experienced. I know it doesn't directly tie into what you've just said, but I think it's easy to go to a tournament because tournaments are open to everybody. And uh, you get first-timers who have barely painted their army. No shade on people not painting their armies, but, you know, someone who's brand new to the hobby, let's say. Or you have people from one of the major international teams, and they could all be mixing together. And in the first round, you may get one of the top players in the country or the world as that person who's just entered the hobby. And uh, if you know who they are, it might, it might frighten you a bit. Or you might be like me, who's vaguely experienced, and it really frightens me a bit, because then I definitely understand who they are and what they can do. And I think going forward, when I come in, if I come into that situation again, I'm going to not let it fluster me, even if I end up playing Manny Chima next, which <laughs> would be unlikely. But if it happens, because we, you know, the, the world of 40k is that small that you might end up playing Manny Chima. You've got to just play the game as two human beings playing the game and not just think, oh my God, I'm going to lose and lose all your brain cells and play differently because you're, well, personally speaking, if I want to be a top player, which I would like to, I think everybody would like to in the competitive scene, that's why we play competitive, you need to see them as your peers rather than sort of on a pedestal because if you put them on a pedestal then you're going to play differently to a normal game a normal competitive game you're going to you're going to be flustered you're going to think differently um i think having reps into tournaments is probably the answer to that go to as many tournaments as you can interact with as many different skill levels as you can as jack said if you meet a player who absolutely stomps you or even if they win by a couple of points, definitely ask them, why did that happen? I mean, we saw it at the LVO, fresh, the last game of the LVO. Pretty much the reason why that guy was playing Necrons, I say that guy, he's one of the most famous blokes at the moment, I can't remember his name, but you know, the Necron player, he won basically because he was able to put a monolith behind the Eldar line. And why did that happen? because the Eldari didn't move his screening units a couple of inches to the rear. Obviously, he's learned from that, and we can all learn from our mistakes. And if you don't know what your mistake is, here's the punchline. Ask your opponent, because they probably do, because they probably went, oh my god, I'm going to win, based on the fact that you've done that bad move. Yeah, it, exactly that. That last part... If you, if you think about the games where you have won and you've been stood at the table and you've thought, why on earth are they doing that? that? That's giving me an advantage. When you are losing games, that person's definitely been thinking that. And that's that learning moment you want to extract from them. The other next thing I want to bring up is, is chess clocks. I guess it can be a bit of a divisive topic. I've certainly had a couple of negative reactions 
but once I've explained the purpose of it, uh, it it's been accepted. And I would say on the whole, though, I would definitely say 90% of the time, it's fine. Most people are used to playing with chess clocks. And, and the reason I got a chess clock was because my first ever tournament game was a really tough experience. I was playing against this chap who, and I was Necrons, he was Death Guard. And turn one, he took an hour. And, and we had we had three hours, this was a local store RTT, and we had, I think, about three hours to play the game. He took an hour for his first turn. And so the pressure I was then feeling, knowing that time was running out, I was taking my turns in, in 15 minutes. And so we, we got to turn three, and, and I called the TO over because I think we had half an hour left and we were in the middle of turn three. And I said, look, this, this chap is, is taking forever with his turns. He doesn't know his army. He's got all of these printed pieces of paper. He doesn't know what he's doing and it's really impacting my ability to play the game. And this guy turned around, called me a liar and said that I was the one that was being really slow. And I was I was so dumbfounded at that response to what I had just said that uh, I didn't really know what to do. Liars, uh, yeah, liars really frustrate me. So I wasn't I wasn't necessarily polite with him over that. And then time ran out, and we were we'd finished turn three. The TO came over, and we wanted to math it out. And again, this chap wanted to disagree and argue the toss on everything I was trying to claim. And the TO wasn't particularly helpful in the sense that he was like, well, this could do this, but this could do this. None of it was really maths-based. It was more sort of, well, this move would, unit would move here and shoot this. Would they kill it, though? I'm not really sure. And so I had to say to this guy, oh, let's play through lunch. And so I ended up playing a four-hour game. And I ended up winning, which was, which was great vindication, absolutely. But I knew after that game I never wanted that experience ever again. So I bought a chess clock that same day. And, and what the chess clock is about is making sure you as the player get your time to play the game. It's not about putting pressure on someone or, or being that guy. When you're playing a game of Warhammer, it's two and a half hours, three hours, you effectively get an hour and a 15 minutes to an hour and a half to play your part of the game. And if another player is taking two hours, well, you, what are you getting? You, you're getting 30 minutes, 45 minutes to play your game. That's not fair. That's that's not right. So that chess clock means that when it's on you, that's your time counting down. You can do what you want with that time. When it's your opponent's turn, you click it and it's their turn counting down. If either one of you runs out of time in that game, then that player can no longer do anything other than pass saves, uh, pass, you know, take battle shock tests. They can't, they can't move. They can't shoot. They can't do anything further in the game on their turn other than try and stay alive. And, and they can score for things that they're still on, but they have had their time. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a great advocate for chess clocks. I know you guys mock me over it sometimes, but it's, it's really important to me to ensure that I get my playtime and I'd recommend them to anyone. I'm going to buy one for this next tournament coming up. And there's a, there's a couple of nuances to it, I think. it's As you said, it's, it's about making the game fair. So if you've got three hours or two and a half hours, which is the norm, you really do need to utilise your time properly. And a lot of that is knowing your units, knowing your lists, knowing all your rules, etc, etc. And I can understand how it's difficult for a new player, if you're going to a tournament for the first time, to... I mean, certainly I did not know my army back to, back to front the first time I went to a tournament. But there's ways of saving time by knowing that, basically, knowing how many dice you've got, you know, so you can easily roll 10 at a time just by looking at your dice tray, you know you've got 20. What I do, I've got 20 dice. If I need 15 dice, I take five away. There's 15, bang, straight away. I don't have to think about it, I don't have to count, I just know. Um, and chess clocks are, they do put pressure on people. It's not something that we can just disregard. If someone turns up to a, a tournament and they are a newish player and someone else rocks up with a chess clock, think jesus who is this you know expletive but when you get to that point where you think actually chess clocks are worthwhile it's more because you've experienced uh, as you have jack the negative to not using one which is sometimes people can take the piss um and i think that's actually what a chess clock is there to prevent it's not the whole thing where if you run out of time and you can't do anything that is the rule and yes 
that is the rule. But I don't think I've ever seen it enforced. I don't think, personally, I think you might be slightly different to me, Jack. You're a bit more hard and fast with the rules and a little bit more leeway, but that's just how we play. Um, <laughs> it's true, it's true. I'd be a bit more flexible, but it's it's on a player-by-player -player basis, like I said, you know. And the ruling is, if you bring a chess clock, as long as one person wants to use it, both parties have to use it. And I think it's the only fair way of managing a game of 40k at a competitive level. Agreed. I think... And just to add to it, you know, I've been using that chess clock for a long time. So I've got 50 games this edition. So I'm probably looking at somewhere between 80 and 100 games with a chess clock. And all of that time, we've run out of time once. And uh, and I think, you know, we had five minutes that we needed extra to finish the game. And that wasn't a problem. I think if, you know, if they're running out of time on turn three, I'm absolutely enforcing that. Like, this, this is just, this is nuts. When we went to Cardiff, uh, the last game there, the chap I played against, when I pulled the clock out, he said, I'm not using that. And I said, you, you don't have a choice. Uh, if I say that we, are, we have a clock, we, we have a clock. I said, but he said, I'm new to the game. I, I, I don't want the stress of that clock. And at that point, I said, that's fine, man. Don't worry about it. Uh, let, let's just play. Because I don't want that guy to have a bad experience. I don't, want that, I don't want to ever be the guy I had my first tournament game against and give someone a bad experience. So... If they're new, yeah, there's, there's no worries there because odds are I should just be able to beat them with my experience anyway. But if they are experienced and they're running out of time, that's, that's, that's what the chess club is there for, to make sure that you have your lot of time, I have mine. One of the, the things you mentioned there was, was time saving. I think there's a, a few things that you touched on, but there's also a few other things that you can do in terms of time saving. And I think one of the things I've come across is, oh, what AP is that? Oh, I don't know. Let me just check my phone. Roll your saves, because if you roll ones and twos on your saves and your armor save is a three, it doesn't matter what the AP of the gun is, you failed. And and that can just save you both time, straight out of the gate. Hello? Hello? Is it me you're looking for? I can see it in your eyes. I can see it in your smile. Welcome back. You're all I've ever wanted. And my arms are open wide. Thank you for the serenade. Tis you know just what to say. Ross, you up? <laughs> well, I have to leave that blooper in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, I, su I sung the... Uh, I sung it, I think. Yeah, you did, you did, yeah. But yeah, that'll be our intro. Uh, one of the things I forgot to mention with the chess clocks, other than obviously ensuring I get my allotted time to play, it's actually added pressure to me to make to play the game in the right amount of time. And that has forced me to adapt and get better because sometimes I feel that you can maybe get stuck umming and ahhing over a decision. Not really, do I shoot this? Do I shoot this? If I move here, what are they going to do? And when you're on that clock, and you know that you've got an average of sort of uh, 20, 25 minutes for your turn, it makes you make faster decisions, and which also then leads to you making more mistakes. But actually, by making more mistakes, you learn more. And so, yeah, I'm a big advocate for clocks. Oh, Lord. So what we've learned from that is Jack loves a big clock. You know, <laughs> heard it straight from the source. Right. Excellent, excellent. So, um, yeah, time saves, moving on from that. And I'm going to tenuously link this time save advice into my next point. So are you ready for it? I'm ready. Being an Orc player, what is the biggest problem with being an Orc player? It's the huge number of models that you've got to move and the huge number of dice that you've got to roll because you've got loads of models. And that's something I've struggled with, obviously. I've got an hour and 15, an hour and a half, if I'm lucky, and I've got to move 100 boys around, plus vehicles. And I've got to roll thousands of dice, probably, for that amount, if they all get into combat. So what I've been doing is using my list-building process to obviously make a good list, make something that I can then hopefully win a game with, but also sort of make my movement and dice rolling a bit more efficient 
in time in terms of like the time it takes so that's something that's not always easy to do because sometimes you know the list that you need to take just has a lot of models in it it just has to be that way because that's the meta that's the list that you need to win with but you can have that in the back of your mind if i bring this list can i actually use it in the allotted time and it doesn't even need to be the amount of models it need, it could even be the diversity of the units and the models that you bring so my orc list is pretty simple i've got can i do it off by off the top of my head i've got gazkel he's new to me so i'm still learning his profile i've got mozrog i pretty much know his profile I've got two war bosses they're both the same easy three units of ten boys once you know boys you know boys as you know and two units of knobs so boys and knobs are basically the same just extra wounds different weapon so easy to learn and then i've got some mega knobs some grot tanks a couple of trucks and some grots so for an orc list that's actually not that diverse there's not a lot to learn there you know your basic profiles and i don't have to flick my app open i don't need to look at my codex which doesn't exist yet uh, or my index you know and i was tried to play death guard recently because i've got a death guard army and the problem with death guard at the moment is to get a sort of decent list you've got to have like five or six different characters you've got to have loads of marines and the marines the way that the, the, the marine squads build now you've got probably four or five different weapon weapons per squad you know it's just so much to learn and that's why i'm not taking them to my next tournament because I, it's too much i'd be constantly looking at my app and that's just eating my time away so build an efficient list in terms of what you can remember even if it's not the best list it's the best list to bring if you've got a set amount of time it's not a game at home where you can take six hours you've got an hour and a quarter you need to know all your stats and the easiest way of doing that is making your list as simple as possible where you can i think that's really interesting i've never really thought of it like that in terms of that efficient list versus the best approach just to even if it is just to get to grips with tournament play, to, to learn your to learn your army, to maximise the amount of time you've got. Yeah, I really like that. I think that's really good. So talking Thanks, of Jeff. lists. No, no problem. So, talking of lists, I think list building to score, not to kill, I think that's definitely and that's definitely something that has been a shift, I guess, in the way I've approached the game worrying about the secondaries how am i going to score what are my scoring units and instead of maybe looking at my list in terms of well i've got i've got x y and z great i, I start now from a basis of okay how do i want to play the game and, and as you know i play behind enemy lines deploy homers pretty much as my go-to and uh, you just play it really badly that's what i've uh, <laughs> yeah something like that uh I, uh, I start my list worrying about secondaries, which I know might sound arse backwards because primary is worth more, but Eldari aren't great at holding primary. So I want to ensure that I can maximize um, my secondary scoring. So I think it's important when you are building your lists to really think about how you want to play, what you want to achieve, and what the role of each unit is. You know, what, why is this unit in my list? What is it going to do? Is it is it going to go and score me points? Is it going to be a move block? Is it a harassment unit? Am I going to use it to, you know, is it the solitaire? Am I going to use this to go and assassinate a character? And that's its one job. Yeah, don't just don't just put things in your list for the sake of them. If, if you are wanting to be competitive, there's nothing wrong with taking models that you want to take, absolutely. But if you want to vie for higher positions, you need to think about your strategy. And it's a bad idea to constantly be fiddling with your list all the time and i was a i was a real bastard for it because i'd go to an event with probably something really non-competitive and then i'd come back and i'd be like oh well obviously i lost because i didn't have the right model didn't have the right units the, the list was terrible it was it was me it was my skill level so list building you have to have so many different end results in your mind so as jack says you've got to have units that score but you also have to think about 
what information you can retain. You have to think about what points you're giving away as well. And also not changing too much all at once because you can't tell if a unit is good or not just from playing it once. You need to have a list that you like that scores reasonably well, is vaguely competitive. You just run it and run it and run it. And then after a couple of games, maybe four or five games, change a thing that you think hasn't worked and then run that for another five games. See how that goes. Is it better? Is it worse? If it's better, excellent. What's the next unit you think isn't quite performing? Take that unit out, replace it with something else. And you will then fine tune your list. That's how the top players do it. When you listen to their podcasts, they play 100 games with one army against every other enemy army that they can find. And they will fine tune it unit by unit with a, a reason for that unit to be in your list. But they only get to that point by getting loads of reps in with the same list lots of different times. And it helps you because you can know your army is working. You can know it back to front in terms of stats. But you can develop yourself by using something which you know is going to perform. You can then work on your own ability rather than constantly fiddling. And that's... That's what I was. I was just a fiddler uh, to my own detriment. I think there's a level of, I'm speaking for myself here, but the easy access with the app and just making lots and enjoying making lists as well. It's almost, I don't know, I, I get caught up in it and it's, oh, I want to go and test this, see, see how this does. And it's, it's actually counterproductive. You've just got to, you've got to put the app down, you've got to stop making the list. Uh, the other thing I would recommend is Tabletop Simulator. If if you can't get reps, but uh, you know if you're at home for whatever reason, it's it doesn't cost a lot to buy it. Uh, there's no additional cost once you own it, and there's a huge 40k tabletop simulator community. A brief Reddit search will will lead you to the Discord, and and that for me has really helped me get reps in. It is very different, and there's a bit of a learning curve with it, but in the past the past month or so i haven't been able to play any 40k but i've managed to get 10 games done on tts just to keep myself in the game keep myself practicing i uh, would definitely recommend it watching live tournaments has been a real eye-opener for me and there's only really one i think there's only one well english speaking one that i've seen which is that war games live which i think glued to the major tournaments uh really doing a great job those guys but there's a big difference between watching tournament streams and watching YouTube battle reports and I've actually found myself not watching many YouTube battle reports anymore because I don't think they really reflect a real tournament game which is why I've been switching over to the tournament streams because obviously the YouTube channels need to make it engaging and need fresh content all the time so they don't tend to use the most competitive units most competitive lists the terrain is obviously uh, wildly different to what you'd see at a tournament, well hopefully anyway. So I would say watch those streams definitely because normally it's the top tables that are being filmed as well. So you'll get to see just how they play, good sportsmanship, it's it's there and available. And it just by watching them you'll improve your gameplay. I mean I, I learn rules nuances just from uh, watching them I'm, you know I, i'm always on on our on our messenger thing going oh my god i just discovered this rule and it's normally just because i've been watching a stream and uh one of the guys has, has done this i'm like why have they done that and i'm about to google it and i'm like oh my god I didn't even know i could do that really really valuable and it's like getting a rep in but not even playing a game it's excellent excellent stuff yeah what one of the mind-blowing thing i learned recently was that uh swarms can't go through walls i saw players moving nurglings around walls i thought why are they doing this i had a look and they don't have the infantry or beast keyword so nurglings ripper swarms scarabs have to go around walls and and when i was playing chaos demons i was going through walls no one was saying anything and i've played against players where they've gone through walls and uh fugan i i've got fugan in my list no matter what he he is in the list because he is, he is just a one-man wrecking ball for 115 points. He's incredible. And initially, I didn't really understand his value. 
But after watching, may have been LGT, I can't really remember what it was I watched, where I saw it, I saw how Fugan was being used, that he is just this piece that goes down one flank or wherever you need him to, and he's this annoying harassment piece. And that changed from me just having him in my list and not and keeping him safe. So oh, I don't I don't want Fugan to die. I might need him for something. But actually he's just this far and forget missile a lot of the times to go and harass things. Another thing is remembering that when you crack a vehicle, the guys inside come out battle shocked. They don't own the objective if they're standing on it can really help you in terms of flipping objectives one model though those guys inside their battle shot they don't own the objective and so at the end of that phase i will then you know score um capture enemy outpost well i don't know why you'd have uh, transport on your home for objective but you might do i could score capture enemy outpost i can deny defend strongholds i can get extend battle lines secure no man's land because of that battle shock. And it's something that I've forgotten many, many times and just felt it was worth mentioning. I guess penultimate point that I, I want to raise is, is rapid ingress. That that I've not valued at all for, for months until it was used primarily by you, actually, Ross, uh, to, to abuse me with. It is fantastic. So Ross runs in his orc list, or was running at least, these, um, these, these cannons. What, what are they called, Ross? Uh, the mech guns. guns, yes, the mech guns, and and they have this swingy D six damage profile. Is that correct? Well, it's they're they're, they're just swingy because you've got D six shots, so um, and they're blasts. So against you know you can have uh, lots of shots. You can have one, and they hit on fours, which is you know the best orc shooting you can get. And then it's D six damage. So you you're just rolling a, a lot of D sixes, and sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's awful. And my experience against them is it has been great. And, and, and maybe it wasn't the best example to use a swingy orc guns, but what Rapid Ingress allows you to do is to, to hold this item in reserve and bring it in on the flank where you need it most, when you need it most, you know, in the opponent's turn. You, you can bring it in your, on your own turn from reserves, no problem, but rapid, because Rapid Ingress happens after the opponent has done all of their movement, actually you can usually bring it in a completely safe place and then have that movement in your next turn to get it to a better angle on something. And it's just this really threatening piece. I don't use it a huge amount in Eldari, but I've lost to it many times. Uh, a Blood Angels player, his death company, he would just rapid ingress one next turn, rapid ingress the others, and, and I was sleeping on it. I really was sleeping in terms of oh, how am I going to deal with that? I've just finished moving all my forces, and on his turn, I can't do anything to shoot it now, and on his turn, he's going to move 12 inches and then be able to charge me. Nothing I can do. Rapid ingress, yeah, I'd really think about it, especially if you're running like Terminators, things that you're deep striking in to try and make 9-inch charges, that's 20, you have a 28% chance to make it, and, and no matter what people say, oh, with a reroll, the odds go up, actually, they don't. Mathematically, they stay at 28%. Uh, so it's better to maybe rapid ingress that Terminator brick somewhere than it is to deep strike. It might not be, but it's definitely worth a consideration in my opinion. Yeah, and it's one of the things that um, I've actually built my current orc list around rapid ingress. And this is going to do you well for our, our little training thing that we've got on Sunday. But <laughs> this is something that Tim told me actually because he, he went up against an opponent um, at Factorum twice maybe an orc player who rapid ingresses Gazkol turn 2, turn 3 and then uses him in conjunction with the WAR to have Gazkol basically in your back line and that's I'm copying it there's no shame in that it works he's won two tournaments with it so I've got Gazkol I've got five mega knobs in a unit and my strategy now is to rapid ingress him where he needs to be on my wah turn um, and then his job is that in my turn he gets to move he gets to advance and then he gets to charge and that's very bad news for my opponent oh right okay so now now what do I do I've got to deal with that or I'm dead so yeah it can really flip the table on your opponent it's, it's definitely lost lost me many a game I, I, that 
lists Tim has played against, I've also been sodomized by that same player in that same list. And uh, yeah, but Gazcor just coming in in my turn and there's not much I can do about it. And he's just free to rip apart whatever he wants in his turn. It's horrendous. So for those of you out there with armies that have you know, maybe Angron is a, is a perfect example. World Eaters. Uh, but think about the lists, the, the units that you have that maybe can deliver a really hard punch if you can get them into the right position and then consider uh, the value of rapid ingress with those units. And before before we try and uh, move on to the next topic, I think just on those core stratagems, the grenade stratagem for me has been another one where I didn't think much of it until I got until I lost a game. I was playing against Mike uh, Costello from Vanguard Tactics and it was a great game. I lost by five points. And, and in the final turn, he had assassination and he threw he threw the grenade stratagem. And with the grenade stratagem, you roll six dice, each four up as immortal wounds. So on average, you're getting three, but he rolled four, four ups. So he got four mortal wounds and killed my autark, scoring assassination. And from that point onwards, whilst it is a bit random, I realized that actually there's a lot of value there for, in terms of mortals, you know, bringing down something like the Avatar, the Incarn. Oh yeah, Grenade is a, is a staple, isn't it? And the good thing about Orcs is I think most of the, most of the infantry, the battle line definitely, have got Grenades. So I like to do the one-two punch where you Grenade, so you, you probably do three mortal wounds, and then you charge with a truck, and then you do Tank Shock, two CPs, but you're probably doing another maybe four, if you're lucky, five or six mortal wounds. So you could potentially do nine or more, if you roll really well, mortal wounds from two CP. And most of the time that kills or severely damages the thing that you're trying to get rid of without any saves, unless you're against custodies with the four up and, or obviously against the field pain, um, or any any wound rolls or any hit rolls it's just instant damage devastating damage for 2cp uh definitely a great combo it's it's pretty disgusting actually yeah yeah sometimes it feels dirty doesn't it because you've got like, it, it the in, you got the ink on you're like well yeah now it's dead because i've just done two cps <laughs> bye bye <laughs> uh, on, on the topic of cp actually while i think of it defensive stratagems and how they are used maybe this is theoretical i'm not 100 percent sure at this stage but so i was split split firing into two different armatures and i put more shots into one than i did the other and this was with wraith guard and the player rotated iron shields on the armager that was taking more of the shots and i thought that was odd for, for me i thought well okay I would actually put iron, rotate iron shields on the one taking the least number of shots to try and ensure that it stays alive rather than have 50-50s on the one. I think it was like six shots into one and three into the other. Maybe that's... I'm sure there's some maths in there needs to be worked out, but I don't always think that putting your defensive stratagems on the thing taking the most amount of fire is the right thing to do because that firepower might still be enough to bring it down if only a couple get through which in terms of wraith guard it absolutely is you only need a couple to go through and uh, job done yeah it's probably just probably just a misplay from that guy isn't it not knowing is uh, that's, the, that's the importance of knowing your your stats isn't it knowing your matchups basically and i agree with you in that in that example we probably should have sacrificed one and saved the other rather than taking the 50 50 of losing both potentially but that's an experience that's what this whole video that's what this whole podcast is about is is exactly that knowing when and when not to blow your load essentially well i guess we're no longer a family friendly podcast but do tell us how you can do that ross i cannot blow your load too early my god Firstly, is by listening to this podcast, because then you'll learn loads of stuff. Secondly, is by just playing as many games into as many quality opponents as possible. We've got, we got one last topic, and I think it's the, the most important thing that upped our game, changed the way we play, helped us get better, and that is sportsmanship. Do you want to give your opinion on sportsmanship? Ross? Ideally, ideally you'd, get, you know, you'd go to a tournament and 
you you play like-minded people. We're all there to play Warhammer, regardless of experience. We we probably are all adults, although there are younger people playing, which is fine. And we should just be adults when playing. Um, treat each other with respect. Don't try and hide stuff. You know, when I get to a tournament and I get to my first map, actually I'll explain my army, I'll explain my abilities. I'll actually tell my opponent that I can do this if you, you know, if you come within my unit, for, uh, if you come within a certain distance, I can do this. If, if you move over there, I can do this. You explain all of your gotchas because nobody likes to have that done to them. Ideally, they would then do the same sort of thing. And the way that we, I think as a community, are trying to move forward is to play a skill-based game without trying to trick each other. Now, that doesn't mean give away your tactics, because again, if you were playing chess, you wouldn't be like, oh, don't move your pawn there because I'm going to put my knight on it. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying if you can see that your opponent is making a move and you've got something that you can obviously counter that with and it feels a little bit crappy to do it to them, you could possibly just go, look, if you do that, I can do this other thing and you probably won't like it when that happens. Do that once, fine. If they carry on making that same mistake, then the next time it's on them kind of thing. But try and play on a sort of fair and level playing ground. Don't trick people. Don't uh, hide your rules. I think it's elite, not illegal. <laughs> it should be illegal. I think it's a bannable offence. I was listening to another podcast where if somebody in a tournament now asks you like, oh, um, what's your stats for that unit? And you sort of purposefully don't tell them the whole story. So you'll go, oh, it's T5, it can move this, it can do this. But then you don't tell them the ability that it can do, which you know it can do. If you then do that ability, they're within their rights to get the TO over and say, look, I asked the guy this thing and he's told me everything except for the ability I was asking for. I'm fairly sure that is now a bannable offence, or at least you'll get you'll lose the match. So it's moving in that direction just generally in terms of the culture of 40k. And I like to play opponents which treat me with respect, and I like to sort of mirror that onto them as well. And it makes for a, a much more healthy gaming environment. People, if you're just open and honest, you end up making friends. Warhammer friends. What's what we need, isn't it? More 40k friends. We can all hold hands as well and uh, <laughs> <laughs> skip into the distance. Such a shame, isn't it? Like, the information's all publicly available. You can access... Oh, God. If you haven't bought the codex, you can't now with some of it, but, you know, the, the information is available to everyone. Why are you trying to hide it? This is not helpful at all. So I'm glad to hear that they're taking action against that sort of uh, approach so that's i think that's it for for this episode guys i think i guess there's more we could talk about but maybe not enough to make this a two-parter so we'll continue to learn we'll continue to go to tournaments uh, we'll make another one of these maybe in three six months time who knows once we have more to share on that front uh, we're going to the Beachhead Tournament. If any of you are there, we will be in purple and black uh, polos, our team shirt for Crump and Dice Trying. And uh, that's a 250 player, six game GT. I don't know about you, Ross. I'm aiming for the top 50. What are you going for? I'm going to win it, mate. Um, obviously, being. Fair enough. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it okay to dream? No, no, that's it. I'm, I'm going there. I'm going 6 and 0. And. Um... I'm going to score 600 points. I'm not even going to drop a point. I'm going to win the whole thing. And you're going to stick around and watch me be on the top podium, getting my trophy. No, that is the dream, but that's not going to happen, is it? I'll be happy. I think I'll be happy if I can go there and maybe go 4-2. Four, four that would be a good result for me. Because I think as long as I don't run into some really 
really tough opponents to start with. I should do okay. I think on a lucky run, I'll be 3-0 and day one. On an unlucky run, I'll be 2-1 and day one. And then probably the same day two. But it's hard to know, isn't it? Because it's such a big event. It's going to be... It's going to be a bit different to what we're used to. There's going to be a lot of different players, all different skill levels. And as we know, it's not only the people that are named on big teams, highly ranked, that, are, that can be excellent players and competitors. We run into enough people who we've never met before, never seen before, never heard of, who absolutely curb stomp us. So I could be living a pipe dream. I might go zero and six. If I do, that's fine. I'll learn. Um, I'm, you know, ideally, I, 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 I win a lot. And that's the dream. That's why we do competitive tournaments. But at the same time, if I lose a lot, I can take a lot back with me in terms of learning. We've got a lot of tournaments this year that we're going to go to. To be fair, it's better to go to a tournament, do badly so you can improve, than go to a tournament, do sort of really well and think oh i don't need to improve anymore i've reached the apex of my game so as long as like you said top 50 i think would be good we could be we could be proud of that anything higher would be would be truly excellent anything lower um if you check ebay after the event you might see a nicely painted orc army sitting on there <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to the data slate being an Eldari player, but uh, we'll see. So the next episode will probably be after Beachhead because the amount of editing this particular podcast Jacks have to do is probably take him until then. Thank you if you've reached the end of the podcast. It has been quite a long one. It has been quite a wordy one. Hopefully you've learned something from it. That's all we want. If you've picked up one little bit of advice that's made your game a bit better, then we're all winners and that's going to make us a lot happier. If you have enjoyed it, make sure to follow us for the next one. And that's all from me. Have a nice day. Have a, have a great day, guys, and uh, we'll see you on the next one.